A fox knows many things, but a hedgehog knows one important thing. It's one important thing. It's one important thing. Welcome to the Spiritual Hedgehog Podcast, where we explore the role philosophy and faith play in your daily life. Here are your hosts, Sarah Gardner and Pastor Eric Dahl. One of the things that we're dealing with, um, I think, are some ethical questions as we go through this pandemic. And I think some of those questions, Ira, have to deal with issues around death and dying, has to do with um, how we treat the elderly. Uh, for instance, just, just to give you a, a little road into what I've been thinking about is, um, I had a meeting with a 85-year-old, and he just feels horrible that people are out of work because of people like him, meaning he's the 85-year-old vulnerable that um, people are trying to protect when he wants to say to people, hey, I've lived my life. My finances are secure. I'm not going to be hurt financially, but I feel really really upset about the fact that there are 30, 40 year olds, even 20 year olds in the prime of their life that are having to make sacrifices in some senses to keep me safe. Now I have issues around that, thinking about that, but I know he's not alone in how he thinks about that. And I think it's part of a, a larger question um, around this question uh, about how we deal with being mortal how we um, deal with uh, living our lives as into our old age, how we as a culture in the United States really deal with this question of death and dying. Just curious, Ira, as, as you think about this, have you run into any of this in, in your thinking, in, um, as you've you know, been, been thinking about this pandemic, about how it is, I mean, even thinking about your own parents, um, how, how it is we should be navigating and, and entering into some conversations around this topic. Well, it's, it's interesting because I, I am seeing both sides of the equation. Uh, on one side, I had a uh, gentleman who maybe a little older than me, so definitely in the higher risk category, who has an attitude of, well, this is natural selection. Um, and then I have another friend who's retired who says, uh, well, while it may be natural selection, I don't want my wife selected. Yeah. <laughs> and and right. I don't want to be the one to, to, to bring that into uh, our household. And uh, so it is this... I think what's interesting about it is it's it would be easier to say, well, for those that need to self-quarantine and for those who can go to work, go to work. But the reality is, is the way this particular virus is spreading, hmm. while I may be able to go to work, I can't keep the germs at work and I can't keep it from spreading and being asymptomatic and coming into contact with people that are high risk uh, with, you know, it just, it, it, it's a real dilemma. Uh, I understand the, the idea of, of, you know, it's a classic ethical dilemma of the needs of the many versus the needs of the few. Uh, 
but on the other hand, when you think about the fact that uh, in the United States already, we've uh, lost more people to this virus than the entirety of casualties in Vietnam War. Yeah. In a much shorter amount of time. Right. It, it, just in these last two months, it went from not even registering on the top uh, killers in, in culture to the number one killer in, the, in these last two months. Um, so that's it's, it's pretty stark. And I think you're right. I think we lose our focus a little bit on who really is at risk. So, for instance, one of the, the debates we're having um, around our church at St. Mark's is, how and when in the world will we ever be able to open? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the so our, in Washington state, our governor has said, you know, a number of times that those who are most at risk, those who are most comprom- compromised health-wise should continue to stay at home. Well, you know, as well as I do, that there are a number of 80, 85-year-olds that you tell them to stay at home and that they're the compromised ones, they're going to say, you don't know me very well. Right, and they're going to be the first ones that show up on a Sunday morning. So it's interesting. Our 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 leadership at our church has decided we're not going to open until we really get to stage four. We're not going to try to piecemeal it when fifty people can come because we we're not going to be able to tell those folks not to not to come. But I, I, part of you know I, I was interested because you did a piece uh, for us at our church about. Uh, Donna, who who sees her calling as as one who who visits the sick, who can bring a little bit of light in the midst of really dark times, and even that work is gone. Um, so I I, I know I'll, I'll circle back to what I mean by that in a second, but I, just to set the phrase, have you have you ever read the the book Being Mortal? It's it's a book by a truly. I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher his name. It's a book by a doctor, isn't it? Yeah, it yes, is. yes, yes. You, you know, it's interesting. I'll be completely honest. I'll come clean on this. Um, I'm in a book club that read that book, and I could not bring myself to read it uh, because at the time we were going through it, I was I was literally in the middle of uh, my father being uh, in acute hospital care being moved into a um, nursing home and had also just come off of uh, spending a year taking my mother to every uh, chemo and radiation treatment to where I just was had compassion fatigue at even dealing with the issue. But I did listen on, in on the discussions about this book, and it, and it is a, a really, really important book. Well, j- j- just a little bit on, on the basis of it, and, the re- and then I'll get to why I'm bringing it up. Is, so he, he's really writing about his, you know, his father was a, a physician, as was he, and his father gets diagnosed with the spinal cancer, and, and they have to go through the ethical questions of, you know, do you do the treatment? If you do the treatment, how far do you go with the treatment? Um, is it okay not to do the treatment? And then it really changed their perspective on as physicians to say, what is our job here? And, um, you know, there are assisting living places that have stemmed up all over the place. And yet the question comes, do these assisting living places really do the case of what they're trying to do is assist in the living, or is it assisting and just trying to keep the person from dying? 
Right. It's almost, you know, warehousing. Right. Yeah. Right. It, it becomes, and I, you know, having just recently watched my dad go, go through this where, you know, I, I think I shared with you before that my brothers and I were talking, we're really glad that he died when he did before this pandemic hit, because we wouldn't have been able to visit him while he was in the assisted living. And right. that would have crushed him. Well, so Atuli Gawundi, I can't pronounce his name. Anyway, his whole premise was to say physicians need to change their focus more towards wellness during the course of life than just thinking about longevity of life. And um, it's, this question is coming up all over the place right now as we think about watching people die alone as we think about um, uh, who we are keeping safe as we're talking about and, and who we're putting at risk. Uh, so when you say, um, the, you know, that the, the friend that says, you know, I'm not, I'm not worried about getting it. Well, great. But it's, you know, and that 85 year old that I talked to not worried about dying himself, but he could walk into our church, the disease, and walk in and then he's making the choice in a sense for that whole living situation that he's in, um, that some people could be compromised in the midst of it. I can't go as far as natural selection that says, you know, but. but no, no. And, and, and then there's other people that are also just saying, you know, well, God will protect me. Yeah. Uh, and therefore I can walk into uh, danger and, and, you know, uh, kind of like people that drive when they think there's an angel on their shoulder and drive recklessly and fast thinking that, you know, somehow I'm, it's all, all good. Um, mm -hmm. And, and you see the drama unfolding in the politics that has a lot to do with people's worldview of whether or not um, I, I think it comes down to two things. One, whether or not they believe that they're somehow chosen or protected by an active God that's engaging in, that sort of work or number two you see people uh, of strong faith that believe that well this life's not important anyway it's the afterlife and therefore um, bring it on so to speak and and I'm not sure either one of those really reflect the the um, true meaning of of the faith and and, and of wisdom and and the ethical uh, choices that we're all responsible to, to make right yeah, I, I, I think so biblically in the, in the Christian faith, it's understanding that, the, that eternal life, that the kingdom of God, when Jesus is talking about those things, he's talking about life right now, interestingly enough. He's not talking about things after you die, but it's living such a life that, that allows fullness to enter in, that allows purpose to enter in starting today. And understanding that that it's not just something that about when you die, but living and how we see purpose and life begins right now, begins in how we are acting, how you and I are relating through through this podcast, through our friendship, how um, we are relating over the course of, of different ways of communicating and understanding that that sense of, of purpose for our lives carries out in little and big ways, not only 
by when I leave this door, you know, leave my front door, but also, you know, as, as I sit in place and, and what I contemplate, who I decide that I'm going to reach out to, who I um, decide that I need to even do more than reach out to, that I, I, I need to help in whatever way I, I can fashion. Um, so I'm curious, just curious as, as we think of our lives of faith and think, think of those spiritual questions, how do we, like our friend Donna, kind of really understand that we are valuing, speaking specifically now of the elderly, valuing their lives, helping them see that they have a purpose until the day they die. They have a purpose. Um, and yet the day they die isn't, isn't the thing that needs to be prevented. Well, yeah. Uh, while you were saying that, I was immediately thinking about the fact that uh, when it comes to the, the elderly in our population, they're often a source of wisdom, mm -hmm. but also they're a source of this important life experience of learning patience, compassion. Uh, you know, I was going through and, and continue to go through in terms of uh, my parents being their last chapter. It has been the most beautiful chapter to, to bear witness to and to participate with that I would, I would not want to be robbed of that, if you will. The, the, the grace, the, the, just the whole being present and being um, that a person's value is not in what they do. It's in their being. It's in their essence. And, and you don't really learn that, I think, if you're not around people that are dying. Mm -hmm. and, and you don't really learn the deepest lessons about love, I don't think, without experiencing loss or without experiencing these just powerfully poignant chapters of life. And uh, a few years ago, I was actually hosting a uh, guest from Afghanistan. Uh, he, is, he was the... Um, uh, he ran the largest news broadcasting company in Afghanistan, and, and he was part of a delegation of people that came through uh, Washington, D.C. and came through Spokane, and, and we host him for a week. And one of the interesting conversations we had is the um, challenge that the population of Afghanistan faced. He says, my generation is a generation without parents, um, and that we are having to reinvent ourselves because we don't have the heritage or the legacy that was passed on from our parents in the same way because a whole generation was wiped out. And you, you see that also play out in history in countries like Germany uh, after mm -hmm. World War II. Um, there was a massive uh, uh, suicides. There was mass, uh, there was just a, a loss of, of lineage, so to speak that has a profound impact for uh, generations to come. And so uh, the thought that we wouldn't try to um, preserve the segment of the population that is undervalued and, and, you know, marginalized, if you will, in mainstream media, mainstream uh, commerce, et cetera. And yet in reality, the value is not in what they do, not in, uh, their, their 
work and, and efforts, but rather in what they teach us, both um, what they teach us both with purpose and intent and what they teach us uh, in, by the consequence of just caring for uh, your, your, your elder generation. As I'm going to ask a question, then I'm going to talk a bit. So we'll give you a, give you a chance to think about it. Uh, think about uh, specifically, I'm curious what your parents have been teaching you um, more recently um, in as, as you see them age, as you see the different struggles that they've been going through. Uh, been thinking about that myself and my, my, so I have, I have this story of my mom who dropped dead of a cardiac event, um, ventricular fibrillation, just fell over and fell dead and she was, she was gone as opposed to my dad who we really, I got to say that long, longer goodbye to. And in that longer goodbye, um, I think I learned, I learned more about myself. You know, I came to grips with some of the ways that I'm just like my dad. Um, some of the ways I'll, you know, that, that, that I used to be just so impatient. And I suddenly found myself having some more patience and understanding my dad in a way I never had understood him before. Um, in the midst of, of that journey, um, I was humbled um, to hear stories. My dad finally became real in the way my dad never was real before. He, he always, I think, was trying to protect us from his faults and his mistakes and his, you know, the things he had done wrong, where finally he was just being open about those conversations, open, open about who he was. It was like my just being with him allowed him finally just to be. He finally accepted me as an adult um, and didn't have to protect me along those lines. I can, I mean, have you had time to reflect on, you know, what you've been learning from your folks in this stage who I know, you know, you've in this pandemic, you, they are part of your circle. They're part, mm -hmm. you still, still check in, in on them and, and are maybe in some ways, as far as at least the primary caretaker um, in helping them make those decisions. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is uh, my parents are kind of, um, a tell of, of opposites in that my father um, unfortunately grew up with a um, his father having such a severe approach to religion that uh, that my father rejected yeah. uh, rejected the teachings um, whereas my mother grew up with minimal um faith practice but as she has grown she has become more and more devout but not in that uh manner of um habit or regimen but rather just a yearning just a, a yearning for knowledge a yearning for personal growth and she has prospered and thrived and it has seen her through uh, surviving stage four cancer. Um, and it, it's just an, an interesting dichotomy of 
these two people who have been married for over 50 years in the same household having a complete different experience of um, end of life chapter. Uh, although uh, I do, um, when my father was, was really um, near a death experience, um, he did find comfort and has found comfort uh, in just listening to my mother and, and, and kind of being more, uh, open to conversations about, uh, God and about, um, the possibility that, uh, uh, possibility that there's something more, uh, for him to, to look forward to. And so he's actually grown his own, um, happiness, it, albeit a very uh, simplistic form of happiness. I mean, he's, he's receding uh, significantly, but it's just been interesting to see how they both are coming to terms with, with life and, and with these circumstances. And uh, they're doing, they're doing really well. They're doing really well. They just kind of work to it in different ways. Hey, thinking, you know, thinking about those conversations and how, you know, how, how our loved ones do, start to pick up you know some of those things from us you you know we reflect on you know our specifically our our sons sometimes and what are they picking up from us and 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 so reflecting at this stage and and what i picked up from my dad is i was able to share with him as he was starting to lose consciousness i shared this in a, a meditation i did not too long ago my favorite scripture um lately has been this this phrase in philippians rejoice in the lord always again i will say rejoice let your gentleness be known to everyone the lord is near and do not worry about anything but with everything with prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to god my dad had that that sense of whether it was good or bad he was going to let it go to the God that he followed. And what was really interesting was this really holy time as I was just alone with my dad, my, my brothers were, were both having to work and take care of some other things at the moment. And I was there and my dad was kind of in and out of consciousness and I could see he was struggling more for breath. And I, I, I share that passage with him and just saw his breathing relax it just, you know, and I hear those stories all the time. I've always been a bit skeptical about them until you see it happen right in front of you, you know, and that depth for my dad in his soul of, of needing someone to be able to turn things over to was important to him. And, and he found great comfort in that. And, and it was as if it was a reminder that there was some, someone that had him that had him and was keeping him whole, keeping him safe. Um, and so that depth of being, and yet, as I would say, my mom, probably more, my dad, more of a feeling faith, my mom, more of an intellectual faith would lean on my dad when she needed to feel some of those things. Um, it, it was this, I mean, it's it, it, this interesting thing that that is more complicated than we give it uh, give it credit for. And so 
you know, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about these stories in the midst of incredible sadness I have of, of hearing these stories of people having to die alone. And it seems to me that with a hundred percent of the effort, understandably so of not wanting this, this horrible, horrible disease to spread, we are, we are losing our imagination on how to deal in some of those situations. Um, we don't talk ethically about why not allow, you know, that one loved one that, that is willing to go in and, and just go from the hospital to home to say, you promise this, you're, you, you are, or the care center or whatever it is where you are the one person and, and to really start to, to be creative. We almost get so reactionary out of fear where fear becomes the, the leading, uh, leading drive that, that we don't just use some, some common sense to say, boy, we should never, ever allow somebody to die alone. We should never, ever allow that to happen. There's got to be a way as a culture we can figure out ways to do this. Um, I'm, I'm not pretending I know the answer to that, Ira, but it, it's, it's trying, to, trying to figure out ways that we don't allow fear to be the prime motivator. Um, and yet fear also is something that, that serves us well. You know, I'm not, I'm not discounting that. So... Well, what's I mean, interesting is, you know, uh, there's two sides of this equation that you're really addressing here. One is this idea from the outside looking in of, oh, what a shame to have people dying alone. And, 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 and that's a, 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 a wonderful viewpoint to have, uh, especially in context of looking at the work that uh, Donna Nelson has, is doing, the pastoral care and uh, in fact, I want to share that uh, right now. Let's just let's just take a moment to to share Donna's story uh, because she's doing some remarkable work, and she really sees the beauty in uh, that last that last chapter of life that she Absolutely. is so uh, compassionately uh, helping people through. So let's take a look at that. Before I go in and visit anyone, I sit in my car and I pray. I ask my God to give me words to um, speak. I ask my God to give me the silence that might be needed. When you go in and maybe you feel like you aren't relating well, there is a distance there, and I'm trying hard to overcome that. And yet I have to sit back and say, God is with us. God loves you, and that will help. My name is Donna Nelson, and I'm the pastoral visitation assistant at St. Mark's Lutheran Church. My job uh, entails visiting people in their homes, at hospitals, in hospice, uh, nursing homes, various locations, I visit with them, I give communion, and uh, we sing songs. We share some life stories, which I really enjoy. 
songs really resonate with me. And so that's why singing to people then um, really it, it quiets me and hopefully them as well. And a person can be there and not able to speak a lot, but the lips are forming the words. And so we are in this holy moment together. When Pastor Eric asked me about this position, I went home and I thought a lot about it and I prayed about it to see if this is something that I would be able to do and to carry out God's word in doing this. And I think that my affirmation now is that um, I feel very blessed to have this calling and to be able to share God's word with others. I think you need to be in tune. I think you need to be receptive to God. Um, and I'm not always. I'm not always. I might be fighting Him or running from Him. <laughs> but I think you need to be open to what that calling might be. It's a questioning relationship. It's a um, focusing. Uh, God, I was raised that I am a child of God. What does that mean for me? Um, what is God's will for me? Those are questions. What, um, how am I growing in my faith? How is my faith testing me right now? Those are questions that I still have, and it's a process. It's not something that, okay, I have the answers, and here we go, and now we're going to go in. Faith is a process. And what's wonderful is God gives me that process. I don't need to know it all. I don't need to um, know all the answers. I don't need to do that. I need to just be in God's presence and ask God to be with me. My calling, I first thought, was career. And I went to career as a first identification as a calling. My career was in universities. I taught child development uh, for about 35 years. I first started at Iowa State University, and then I went to Oregon State University. I'm more settled with a calling. I'm more settled, I think. Um, in a career, you have ups and downs, <laughs> and, uh, and you yourself question that career. Um, and so I think with my job, um, it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed, again, the intergenerational work that I was doing. Um, but I'm more settled, I think, with my calling at church. Uh, and I think God helps me with that.
I think a common denominator for me would be I'm not a tech person at all. And so my common denominator is I enjoy being with people. Uh, but of course, I'm a family member. That's another calling. And I feel very blessed. I was raised in a Lutheran Christian home. Um, my grandparents were Lutheran. My parents were Lutheran. I was born May 16, 1946. I was baptized June 6, 1946 at Gethsemane. Um, so a very strong, strong home and family. And it is that way today with our siblings. Our parents are deceased. Um, but I also see the calling at church now. And I very much enjoy my ministry and sharing my ministry with others. Um, I think that one of the great things that we do at St. Mark's is we try to see ourselves as a community and growing together, supporting each other, and that's very strong. And just to let you know, then, Ira, that Donna, Donna is one of those, those souls who comes, comes into, you know, she moved from the West side mm -hmm. and um, you can just feel, you can just see it ooze out of her, her care and compassion just, just flows out of her. And it comes from her deep abiding faith that she would attribute to her parents in a lot of ways. Um, uh she she is one that is never afraid to make that extra phone call that isn't doing it for the money or for her livelihood it's doing it out of that deep sense of calling in the midst of it so thanks thanks for doing that interview and and donna is like an energizer battery of love like you just the minute you meet her she just has zaps you with this incredible life energy and i just feel so privileged to to know her um and you know of course that interview was focused on on her uh pastoral work but i've gotten to know her on a more uh, personal level and um she is a very real deep human being and and uh and has struggled and and had uh life challenges and, and one of the things that uh uh you know, we talk about having access to our partners and our loved ones, and, and that brings up issues uh, with regards to the, the the debates we have about marriage laws in this country and, and that sort of thing. But I don't want to go there. That's not what this episode's about. But I do want to uh, talk about one other facet, though. We're talking about what it's like to be with somebody dying, and, and I've, I've had that experience as, as well. Uh, dear, dear friend at hospice. Um, I mean, I just uh, admire what, what the, the folks at hospice do. They just do an amazing uh, service for our society. Conversation um, to become more at the forefront in our culture that just denies death. I mean, it just, we deny it in our language. We deny it, you know. Well, what's interesting about that is our whole economic system. And it's interesting that, you know, you talk about the, the, the ethical dilemma is really associated with the economics of the virus. Yeah. 
And our economic system, particularly capitalism, is based on a denial of death yeah. and a prolonging of youth in, in, you know, not just in the cosmetology products, but just in general, this idea that we're a young-minded culture. Yeah. Uh, and, and what's interesting is research, uh, um, there's been some, some hypotheses in research done about American capitalism that states that part of why we're hardwired that way, more so even than Europe, uh, which is very capitalist too, but the uh, the legacy of a immigrant culture that only ten percent of the world's population are willing to abandon everything they know in search of a uncertain future, but a, with a profound belief that there's going to be something better. And so, uh, unfortunately, that led to the the oppression of indigenous cultures. But the dominant culture is one that believes that we can get what we want and get something better uh, through this industrious energy of commerce. And um, advertising is the message is predominantly about uh, a youth culture. Where, you know, and I always curious about where the individualism sort of fits into that too. You know, it's, it's, and what I mean by that is, is, you know, all these other cultures that really have valued taking care of their elderly to our culture where our elderly are, you know, and, and in those cultures, they would say, yeah, my kids have the responsibility, just like I had the responsibility mm -hmm. to take care of my parents. And that's what we do. That's who we are. That's what makes our culture go. We're almost to the, such the opposite extreme where, I, you know, uh, how many hire elderly folks we've I don't turned want. it into a career, a job. Yeah, we hire it done. That's right. We and, outsource, I, and, and we say for ourselves, I just don't want my kids to have to take care of me. Uh, but then there's the other side of the equation, which is what is it like to be the one dying? Mm -hmm. um, have you ever had a, a, a life experience where you've been told that you may not live? I I have not um, though you know I. I think I, I may have shared one time this, this story in India where I wasn't sure I'd ever find my way home again, but, mm -hmm. but that's more of a humorous one. But I, I think Ira, you have, and I would love, I to, I'd love to hear that story a little bit if you're willing to share it. Well, um, you know, I've had a couple of near death experiences uh, while mountain climbing, but actually the closest um, death experience I've personally had, was uh, after I'd broken my ankle and had surgery and ended up a couple of weeks after surgery getting uh, clots that went to my lung. Uh, my whole um, left leg was filled with thrombosis and literally had, uh, by the time I, you know, I thought I had the flu. I just thought I was sick, hadn't paid attention to what was going on. Uh, and I'm, I'm pretty stubborn about no, not going to a doctor unless I'm literally dying and it turns out I was uh, and I went to uh, urgent care and the doctor examined me and said um, you need to go straight to the hospital uh, don't take time to go home call your family gather them I'm not sure you're gonna make it through the night Wow and uh, and I ended up spending uh, over a week in the hospital intensive care unit and and it's one of those that I'm fully conscious, but I'm also just terribly sick. 
and there was nothing that, that they could do medically for me other than to try to prevent any more clots from happening. There, you know, there was no, it was too late for any clot dissolving agents or any, any real um, uh, intervention whatsoever. It was really just prevent any new ones from forming and wait and see. And I remember uh, spending that those days in the hospital and really feeling um, the burden that it was creating for my loved ones to to be worried. And 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 that that actually was the greater stress for me. I, dying somehow didn't didn't bother me. It was the worrying about the pain I was causing others. Uh, and I just think that's an interesting part of the equation. I think part of uh, the the uh, goal of of how do we handle that is to like you 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 essentially were giving uh, a relief to your father to to that he could let go and not worry about you mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's really important and then I think it's also important for the person that's that's out in their last moments to uh, to not be worried about um, the ones that are leaving behind. And, and, and the only way you really get around it, at least in my book, the only way you get around it is to know that we're all God's children. We're all, yeah. we're all being cared for. We'll all get through this. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's a, a really nice take. I think we can in some ways bring this thing a little bit full circle as you think about that. And, you know, you're talking about your parents and the blessing just them being has been for you. Mm-hmm. I, I will, I will often talk to folks and say, I, I am one that's known depression. I'm not, not afraid to admit that it's, it's, and my dad was one that knew depression. And because of that, because of knowing depression, I think there's part of me that does not fear death, interestingly enough. Mm-hmm. And often what, what causes me the greater worry, right? And what is also some of the motivating factor for me to continue to find my purpose, to continue to find ways to live is thinking about my kids and the things that they worry about and the, you know, and to realize that I've come to understand even more so that the bigger burden for them is for me to give up before I should. And yet my gift to them is saying when my time does come, to, to continue to have, you know, those end of life conversations with them to say, you do not need to worry about me and I don't want to need to worry about you. So how, how do, you know, because I don't want that, that to be the issue that's keeping me, you know, going, you know, when, when I shouldn't be, you know, when, when I, you know, if, if you can say that, that, you know, shouldn't is never a, a very spiritual word, but at the same time, I think it provides different, different motivation in in that time for you, Ira, when, when, when you were going, going through that, um, was that fear? What was it a fear? Was it a, a worry? I mean, how, what kind of words can you put around it besides, you know, the burden that you were causing others? And, and do you look at it differently now, a number of years later, as you kind of reflect back well, it was interesting. When I got out of the hospital, um, I had a mother of one of my students reach out to me 
and she wanted to give me her take on it because she had been through the same experience uh, many years before. And she described it, she says, I think what you'll find is it's a bitter blessing. It's a difficult experience that is actually a blessing in disguise because when you wake up every day, it's a good day. And you have a deeper understanding of how precious your life is and you can make the choices that you want to make. And I couldn't agree with you, uh, with her more. And I, I I mean, it has totally changed how I, you know, how I live my life in terms of being grateful. Not, not, it hasn't changed what I do, it hasn't changed some of the choices, but it's changed the way in which I have a tremendous gratitude for every day that I do have, and I don't take it for granted. And I guess that's the, the, the legacy of it is I don't take it for granted. And getting back to uh, the kind of this, how do you negotiate between the one that might be dying and the one that, that is surviving? Um, and I think about how important it was, for example, to work with uh, an elder uh, attorney to get all the, the, all the paperwork in order and get all the medical directives and all those things. But the other thing that we, we need to have in order is, is our, um, sharing of who we are at, at a spiritual level to where we can be okay, um, knowing that we can be okay. And so I, I think the one thing that came about, the way I resolved the pain of watching my, my loved ones be un, uh, unhappy or worried for me was just to let them know that, you know, I'm okay. Yeah. I, I know I'm connected to something bigger than this body is connected to. Uh, I, I will tell you, I, I, you know, there are certain faiths that will paint pictures and tell you what, what heaven is and all that stuff. I have no clue. And I, I'm really not even that curious. I just know that I'm connected to something bigger and I'll, I'll get there where, wherever that is. Um, and I, and, and for me, I feel deeply connected to every, uh, everyone else, uh, in the universe, uh, because of that, that spirit. And so, for me, being able to have a, a conversation about my faith, to share that with uh, my family, was kind of like getting uh, the, the paperwork in order, so to speak. And it, it reminds me, um, a couple years ago, I was getting ready to uh, leave on a big motorcycle trip. And I promised Sarah that I wouldn't leave without getting my will in order and getting it updated. And I had procrastinated, procrastinated. Finally, it's the day I'm supposed to leave. I finally finished, you know, got, got everything ready to go. And I thought, well, I'll just go down to uh, my bank and get it notarized. Found out they, they couldn't notarize it. So I literally had to call my in-laws because they were retired. They were home. And my parents were unavailable. Can you come meet me at the bank to notarize my will so I can go on this motorcycle trip? <laughs> And they, and they did. And, uh, but it just, for me, it was about, you know what, that's what was needed for both sides of this relationship to, to be okay with the unknown. And I think, um, having conversations about your faith and and, and your spiritual life is part of, you know, the, the gift that you had with your father. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's the gift that my parents are having, where and you talked about how your mother leaned on your father 
now my my father is leaning on my mother for mm -hmm. those same uh, same ways you know and, and there is that difference between the intellectual faith versus the um the intuitive the just the yeah. uh yeah yeah no, let's what just if i may one more, you know one more story because i think i've shared with you one other death that was sort of really impactful in my life was my sister Amy's mm. she's the one that you know put me on that book being mortal she and and, and my brother-in-law Bob who she wrote poetry who, didn't she yeah she did yeah, and I remember she that. yeah some, some beautiful poet poetry that I you know some I'll, I'll bring you that book at some point just to show it to you I, I don't think I have before she she went through when she knew she had this and knew she was going to die she went through about a three-month period where every morning she'd wake up and write a poem and sometimes it would be remembering a grandparent you know but it, but it's just these beautiful gift to have to go back to like keep on my bedside stand but i was talking to her in some of her last you know you know as she was getting closer and, and her biggest fear having lung cancer not it just like to let people know for her it was non-smokers lung cancer not that I judge those who have smokers because we all go through our journeys, you know, but for her, her biggest fear as she was going, going through this is she wanted to, to live a life that had purpose. And as she was getting close to the end, she did not want to have to suffer from not having breath. Mm -hmm. um, just, I mean, that her fear was not of death but it was of the dying process, right? Of, you know, and I think that's true for, for, for many of us. And yet in the midst of watching her go through, my sister had a very difficult life and she was one of the most intuitive people I have ever known in the history of my life. She is, she was one, you know, you know how you can be so intuitive that it can borderline on paranoia at times because reading into things that are there and then you just take that one little extra step and suddenly everybody's against you when they're probably not thinking about you quite as much as that but the beauty that came from her then finding a way to share her fears through poetry to share her journey to share her story i think enriched her husband's life and i know it enriched my life and watching my dad watch his old, oldest child go through that, um, I think he blocked some of it. But again, as he lay dying, we were able to revisit her death. And, you know, my, my dad had always, my, my sister was, my, my sister was one who did not have a traditional faith, though she was steeped in the same, you know, same faith I was and, and would return to that. But she was also had a lot of Buddhism in her and, oh, she experimented with Wiccan stuff. She, you know, did these beautiful art quilts that just showed the, the feminine, you know, she, she opened my eyes to a way of the spiritual, you know, spiritual. We would have gotten along great. Oh, you, you two would have. You, you, <laughs> there's not even a question in my, in my mind about it. Um, but she, in those last two years, she, our, our relationship just deepened in a, in a sense too that allowed me to say, you can have purpose until the day you die. And 
That's and even when you don't know it, that state of being and and being even the the person that people are gathering around gives a different connectedness than I think we can even, ever even understand just intellectually. It's 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 something that that unites unites us on a on a different level, and so. I'm thankful for the work of folks like Donna, um, who, who really want to validate people's end of life stages. And it's, it's one of the reasons I got into the ministry. I think I've always said this, that probably the reason is as I entered college as a math student, um, thinking I'd go into math and then thought, no, I'll be a teacher and then being pushed into the seminaries because being involved in the most intimate stages of people's lives and the end of life is one of those things. And it has helped me immensely. And here's, here's the irony. I think it has helped me immensely in dealing with my own depression over the course of my life um, in having, as you were talking about gratitude and really wanting now to kind of push those understandings ethically of, of how, how we talk to physicians, how we talk to caregivers, how we talk to everyone to say, boy, there's a place of honor here and that's treated as such. Well said, well said. Well, I think that's a good uh, stopping point for today. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's uh, important, important material. Thank you so much, Eric. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Appreciate it. Well, thank you all for joining us today. And again, please uh, uh, go to our website, thespiritualhedgehog.com and submit any questions or comments or anything you'd like to share or see us talk about. Uh, We are here to have a conversation with you. Thanks so much. We'll see you soon. Thank you for joining us today on The Spiritual Hedgehog. For show notes and more information, go to www.thespiritualhedgehog.com.